Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. Hold on to your pants, it's time for a special episode. Hey, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. We're doing something a little different this week. Uh, If you don't know, Peter and I are designers. I mean, it says it at the beginning of every episode, so I would hope they know almost 200 episodes in. (laughs) So in case you aren't aware, Peter and I are designers. (laughs) (laughs) So we have designed a couple of games, and uh, this episode, we decided to throw out some tips for designers. So we're going to each do our own top 10 list of top 10 things that we think you need to know as a designer. And since we clearly don't have a ton of games designed, maybe there'll be top 10 things to do the exact opposite of, and you can get way greater success than us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's part of my list. It isn't, mine aren't all tips. Mine are also things you need to know, like go in eyes wide open for some of these things. So they're not exactly like top 10 tips, but they're like things you should know as a designer. Yeah, no, I, I have a few of those as well. But, you know, before we get into our whole discussion about that, we always like to thank some of our Patreon supporters. Uh, We're going to talk about three of them this week. But thank you to all of our supporters and really everyone who contributes to the One Stop Co-op Shop in whatever way you like. Commenting on YouTube, joining our Discord and talking over there, reviewing our podcast and just letting people know what you think of it. Uh, Anything you do is great. But our patrons, you help us defray the cost of putting on the podcast, getting games, upgrading our equipment, all that amazing stuff. This week, we'd especially like to thank Patrick Fawcett, who's a co-op lover, Pazuzu, also a co-op lover, and Zane, exactly a co-op fan. So thank you to the three of you, and again, to everyone who helps us out. Uh, We wouldn't be where we are and doing what we do without all of you. Yeah, and I just got myself a microphone stand, so I appreciate that. So if my sound is better, it's because the microphone is closer to my face. Nice, nice, nice. Uh, Before we get into the design talk, Peter, you've been playing anything recently? Anything you want to talk about? Well, we've done a couple things on the stream channel. So people who don't know, we've been playing games every Saturday night on the stream. So one of my favorites that I wanted to introduce you and Jerry to was uh, Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion. And let me say just up front, and then I want to hear your thoughts. This game gets better every time I play it. I I really do wish I'd put it on my list last year because we're not going to review it this year either, right? So it's never going to get its chance to get its uh, game of the year. So I, I'm officially changing my game of the year from last year from Kingdom Rush to Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion. Well, and that was totally my fault because I never got around to playing Jaws of the Lion last year. So I didn't feel comfortable like having it on my top 20. And so I kind of forced you to take it off of your top 20. So <laughs> totally blame me for that. Kingdom Rush is still a great game. Don't get me wrong. I, I don't want to, you know, spit any venom at it. It's just, I like Jaws of the Lion. It is my favorite iteration of the Gloomhaven system. I guess there's only two iterations, but I, I like it better than base Gloomhaven because I like the slow, gentle introduction. But for me, the battle map is what makes the big difference. Like the book itself, oh, that's so much better than trying to lay out like an hour worth of setup. Yeah, I mean, there there is not a single thing about base Gloomhaven that I prefer to Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion, even having played only part of it. And that some of that is particular to my taste, because I don't like really long campaign games. I usually, just the realities of my life, don't have time to get through them. So Jaws of the Lion being shorter is actually a good thing for me. I don't need 100 missions to explore. I don't need, like, 50 classes to look at. And then, yeah, like, the, the setup and the tutorial system... All that works fine. I mean, I I will say kind of uh, off of what you just said about it getting better each time. 
it has the same issues I have with uh, base Gloomhaven, which is not much. I think Gloomhaven is a beautiful, amazing design. I don't think there's any dungeon crawler that's even close to it for me. But, you know, playing the same character over and over, I, I don't necessarily think the scenarios change up enough. Often it's just slightly different enemies that you're facing. And, you know, you have the same character for a long time, uh, only slight evolution each time. So just for my personal taste, where I, I like games where I can play like an entirely different faction or an entirely different hero each time I try it, it does get a little bit samey. But that's my, my only major complaint. I think that it's an awesome system, and I think Jaws of a Lion is the best version of it I've played. Well, you know, there's actually nothing in the rules that say you have to play the same character over and over. In fact, there are rules for, like, bringing characters in and out of the system, and you don't level them up, you just level down the enemies. So you might have a little discrepancy in levels, but, I mean, especially if we all decided at the same time to change characters, we could play later missions at level one, if I'm not mistaken. So there are ways to do it. You're just not going to see the leveling up of the enemies and you're not going to have those better decks yourself. But there's nothing in the rules that says we couldn't have two sets of characters and actually switch between them between games. No, that's a good point. I mean, the thing is, I do like games that have leveling up systems. Uh, Gloomhaven's, I I haven't seen enough of Jaws of a Lion to know if it has the same problem, but I always found base Gloomhaven to be slower than I would like. Like, you know, I'd unlock a new card, which is kind of the most interesting thing every like two or three scenarios, maybe even every four scenarios. I like uh, games where I get something cool because Gloomhaven often gives you something, but I mean something cool after every single game. Like, you know, kind of like that legacy element where I'm unlocking a new envelope every single time I play. I just find uh, Gloomhaven's pace is a little bit slow, but Jaws of the Line is a much shorter campaign. So maybe it speeds up again. I haven't played enough yet. You probably know that better than I do. Well, there are 25 missions and there's only four characters in the box. So there's that. Well, but but I mean, do your characters level to the maximum level or are they like under leveled by Gloomhaven standards by the time you finish? I, I don't know all of that. I have not completed the campaign either. But if you guys want to play along with us and see how we're progressing through it, all of that is available on the stream channel. So you can catch up even if you've missed us on previous Saturdays. You can catch up and watch all the episodes. We're not that far into the campaign yet. So you can play along with us and we're doing it live. So you're more than welcome to talk to us while we're doing it, too. And, uh, you know, make fun of us as we do dumb things. And that happens pretty often. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, that's the whole point, right? Like, that's why we do stuff live. So people can like haze us and and rip on us. And then uh, I guess we we both played Viscounts of the West Kingdom. Uh, like a week or two back now, right? Yep. And I really liked it. I mean, you know me. I'm I'm a Euro fan. I mean, people who've started watching the stream channel will see that. A lot of the games that I'm playing solo are Euro games. There are three that have come out, and I, I put them kind of in a similar bucket, which was Praga Kaput Regni and Viscounts, I, I think, are very similar in my mind. And Dwellings, that's a third one, right? Dwellings of Eldervale. Yeah, Dwellings of Eldervale is a little bit different. Like, I, I separated a little more. I, I put Praga and Viscounts very close to each other, though, as far as... I mean, they don't have the same mechanics, but they have the same feeling to me. They're like point salads. We're just getting a lot of points for stuff. Where with Dwellings of Eldervale, there's a little bit more combat, a little bit more area control fighting for the board, which you don't have in the other games. Those are more multiplayer solitaire to me, which I like. That's not that's not a derogative term coming from my mouth. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've been really impressed by Viscounts. Like, if I had reviewed that in 2020, that would have been pretty high on my... Uh list at least for the solo play like i think the co-op is good but i wouldn't like buy the game just for the co-op and it's a separate expansion to even play it co-op anyway right but i am looking forward to trying the other games in the system both paladins and and what's the other one 
Architects of the West Kingdom. Yeah, that, that one I don't have yet, but I think I'm getting it. Paladins. It's interesting. I've been playing. I played it more solo because I wanted to try out the co-op. So I wanted to kind of remind myself. And I was pretty down on Paladins when I uh, did a playthrough of it on the channel a while back. I never did a review at that point. I enjoyed it more in these recent plays. I don't know if that's like coming off of Viscounts or if I just got better at the game and I found it more fun. We're making you a Euro player. <laughs> I mean, I, I've always been a bit of a Euro player. I'm just very choosy about which Euros I enjoy. But yeah, the, the co-op scenario for Paladins is a kick in the nards. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, you said that about Viscounts and we kicked its butt. No, 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 no. I, I never played the Viscounts co-op. That was the first time I played it. I said it seemed like it might be hard, but I had no idea. No, but the I did a playthrough. I recorded a playthrough. It'll be on the channel, uh, not by the time this airs, but sometime soon, for Paladins co-op. And it is just bonkers hard. Maybe I just haven't broken the code for it yet. But man, like I didn't even come close to beating it on the easiest difficulty level, which uh, was how the, the solo for Paladins was. It's, it's very interesting. Like Viscounts, I was challenging the easiest level of the AI right off the bat. Paladins, I think I finally won a game solo, like my seventh game or something on the easiest difficulty level. I don't know why. Maybe I'm as bad at that game, or I think maybe the difficulty level is just higher. I've seen that said online, so I don't know. All right, but uh, with uh, some talks about games we've been playing out of the way, let's get to the main topic of today, which is uh, just 10 thoughts, 10 tips, whatever they are, (laughs) on being a board game designer. Yep, and we're going to start with our number 10, which is what we think is the least important thing, and we're going to work our way up to number one, which we feel like is the most important thing. Well, yeah, and I'll say that mine are not in... It took me a while to write my list, and they're not in a specific order, so... But some of them kind of, like, go... I'm I'm sorry, I know. But some of them kind (laughs) of, like, go from one into the other, so it sort of shows my stream of thought, I guess, as I was writing them. So, yeah, so my, my first one, my number 10 is uh, this is something to know about being a designer. It's not necessarily a tip, but a lot of design work is drudgery. And I don't even mean like <laughs> creative drudgery where like, you know, you're, you're coming up with really crazy ideas and you're like figuring out cool effects. But at least if you defi- design anything like we do, then, you know, you'll find that your game is unbalanced in X way, or you'll find that Y element is unfun. And this is like, I'm talking about once the game is fairly well formed and you might redesign 30% of it, or you might have to go through like 500 cards in a spreadsheet and change every single one by some minuscule value to get the balancing right. There are so many nights <laughs> that I've stayed up like till two or 3 a.m. working for like four or five hours, just doing stuff that from an outside perspective don't necessarily even seem to matter but like living in the game and knowing what the feedback is, I can see why they could have a major effect on like the overall play of it. So it is something to be aware of, at least if you end up uh, being somewhat like us as designers. There is a lot of this that will just feel like busy work, drudgery, like mundanity, just <laughs> kind of like boring work when you're not doing like what I find the most exciting part, which is like really early on in the process where you're just like the disguise, the lemon, you're just coming up with like cool things on the fly and trying them out. Yeah, I have something similar to that later. So I'm not going to talk about it now. The only thing I'm going to say is if you are physically prototyping games, not only is it drudgery to change all those cards till four in the morning, Mike would then send those to me at four in the morning and I'd be up from four to like 8 a.m. building a physical prototype every single time we made those changes. So, I mean, <laughs> you're talking, it's, it's almost double drudgery if you're making physical prototypes. Now, we've done a lot of stuff. I mean, obviously during the pandemic 
online through Tabletop Simulator, and it's way faster once you get that initial build in to update stuff. But boy, I remember nights where I was just cutting cards and sleeving cards and unsleeving cards and over and over and over. So uh, yeah, there's some drudgery on the physical end of it as well as the mental end of it. Yeah, absolutely. I was there with you sometimes, but you've certainly done the vast majority of that stuff. So thank you. Oh, no problem. But uh, my number 10 is, so this is more of a tip. So when you decide that your game's done, right, you're ready to go pitch it to somebody. And we'll talk about, uh, you know, more about pitching later. But it's important to find a publisher that is publishing games similar to what you're doing. Now, you don't want them to be the same, right? So for example, uh, what's that game by Renegade, the solo game with the space token bag building game? Oh, uh, Warp's Edge? Right. You wouldn't want to go to Renegade with a Warp's Edge, right? Or with a spaceship game with that is a bag builder, right? That, that plays solo, right? <laughs> they already have that game. They don't need a second one. But you could see that they're doing a solo line. They've actually had a couple games in that solo line now. So if you're doing a solo only game, they're probably a really good publisher to go to. Or Van Ryder Games, who comes out with a lot of solo games as well. Or if you've got some kind of a book idea, Van Ryder Games does those as well. So it's really knowing the publishers, knowing what their lines are, and finding the publisher which matches up with your game. Yeah, it's, it's almost like you want to find the publisher that is doing work adjacent to your design, but doesn't have your design yet. Like Peter's right. Like if, if a company already has a racing game, don't pitch them a racing game, but pitch them something that has some elements or themes similar to the racing game they already have. Or better yet, if you could fit it into one of their universes, even better. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we've had publishers like tell us we'd like you to change your game <laughs> to be in one of our universes. <laughs> you know, so publishers like j- just like uh, Marvel and all the film studios, they want to build their little cinematic universes as well or g- game matic universes, as it were. Nice. I think you just invented a new word. I like it. I mean, it's a terrible word. <laughs> never never say it again. <laughs> it's like the pop matic bubble, the game matic bubble. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> nice. All right. So what's your number nine, Mike? Well, my number nine is all about you, Peter. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I do, I, I, unless it's something bad. <laughs> no, no. So uh, my, my number nine is, this is a tip, uh, is that it is great to find an active partner to bounce ideas off of, to run mechanics through, like with on the phone, like talk them through things, to try out early builds. And it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, it could be like Peter and I, uh, we could be co-designers. It could be a mentor, like someone else who's already designing games. I've acted in that role for a few people and kind of helped them out and bounced ideas back and forth with them. It could be your best gaming buddy. A great thing is a lot of people have found these in their area, uh, forming or joining a like designer group where it's already like five or 10 people who all keep each other going and kind of keep the atmosphere high and don't let each other fall down and give up on their games. Uh, that stuff is great, but th- the most important reason that like, I appreciate you, Peter, in our design process is that, first of all, just talking through your design ideas with somebody else, for me, I f- figure out the worst parts of my design by trying to tell somebody else about them. You know, so you aren't going to have that if you're just sitting by yourself, never saying anything, but trying to articulate a mechanic or a design and like hearing yourself talk about it is often going to show you where the uh, the weak spots are. And then beyond that, you can save so much time by bouncing ideas off of somebody. 
and them, again, like helping you to find uh, the weakest things or maybe having some great stroke of genius idea that'll take your design to that next level. So I think it all comes down to conversations about games. And the best way to have those consistently is to cultivate some kind of relationship with a co-designer, with a design group, with a game buddy, whoever it is. I think that's, at least for us, it works amazingly well. Like even when I've gone off and designed something kind of like by myself, like a solo variant or something, there are people I know I can go to, to uh, just like kind of talk it through. Like when I was doing a... you know, these level 99 fighting game uh, designed uh, variants recently for solo play. I had this one person on our Discord who's a big uh, player of those games. And I would just like design a character and they'd go and try it and tell me how it was like right away. So these great like little relationships you can form to help you figure out your own ideas better is awesome. Yeah, I think there's a couple things with that. Number one is as I mean, going back to your number 10 point, the drudgery part of it, like there are going to be a lot of nights you're going to have to motivate yourself to do stuff. And in fact, I just saw a designer on Twitter this morning that said, man, I'm just sitting in front of my computer and it's hard to get motivated. And it is. It is hard to motivate yourself for the drudgery part of design and having somebody there to motivate you. That's like, all right, it's almost design night. Where are we at? Like, what do we want to have done for tonight so we can progress faster together? And I know there are some nights I am sure of this where I have (laughs) where I'm basically not there, even though I'm on the other end of the line. I am totally not there. You're doing all the work, but I'm just there kind of pushing it along. And, you know, because everybody has their nights, right? And I'm just like out of it, whatever else. And I think even that is sometimes helpful. The one thing I'll say is we've tried to do text and email sometimes. And I think things just get lost there. I think, you know, you spend more time clarifying and things like that. I think if you could be on a live conversation, I think it's much better for that design process for me, at least anyway. No, for sure. I've appreciated, you know, back when I was commuting to work, instead of doing everything online still, even like just calling you on the way home from work and like talking through an idea that I had, like uh, at some point during the day has been helpful. But yes, certainly like when we're designing, I like to just have you on Skype, even if I'm working on one document and you're working on another, just to kind of like hear each other. And I know it's my time that I need to be working because Peter's right there on the line and I can't just stop working. So I'm going to do something. You know, I think I think all of that could be helpful. Absolutely. All right. So my number nine is there's not as much money as you think. <laughs> <laughs> do, do people think there's a lot of money? Is that is that a common I, I mean, I don't know. Like, well, I, all right. So you'll see my next one also. But like, I don't know what the motivation is that people want to create designs and, and do designs. And honestly, the reason I got into it was because I was having kids and I didn't have time for game night anymore. So I wanted something I could do on my own, ironically, after we said how much easier it is to work with somebody. And then, you know, once I started working with you, I mean, it's it's never been about money for me. It's been about the artistic side and the creative side. But I mean, unless you have one of these big hits, you're not, I mean, it's not going to be enough to live by. You know, people who are doing this full time are putting out four, five, six games a year. And we wonder sometimes why games are half-baked or or aren't that great. Well, if designers are putting out that many games a year, now some of them they've been working on for years, right? But I mean, some of them have clearly been rushed through and you're not going to get to fully develop and stuff like that if you're putting out that many games a year. It's something that is really hard to do full-time if you were just going to design. If you're doing it as a hobby, great. If you're having fun doing it, please keep doing it. But just be aware, I don't know that the light at the end of the tunnel is I'm going to retire and become a full-time game designer. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, (laughs) you can even look at, like this is something I think about for the YouTube channel side of things often. Like you look at some of the most successful board game channels, right? 
Uh, maybe not the top of the top, but like the pretty successful like ones that have like 30,000 or 40,000 subscribers or 50,000 subscribers. Oh man, for like a really big game, they get 50,000 views or 70,000 views. And then you look at like <laughs> some minor like channel where uh, somebody's doing like video game coverage or some minor channel where somebody is like reviewing like movies and has gotten like a bit of traction. And they have like 500,000 or a million subs. And they're like some paltry thing compared to the biggest players in that field. Board gaming is a niche, like even though we're growing, we're growing and we're growing and we're growing. We're still a very niche like industry compared to a lot of things. And, you know, you can write that one movie and be set for life if some big studio pays you a ton of money, or maybe not set for life, but set for a long time if they pay you a ton of money. You can uh, be involved in that one big video game and really do well for yourself but yeah, I mean, unless you strike the absolute gold with that one board game, this is totally a a hobby thing or you're, you know, not eating <laughs> or not paying your mortgage or not making enough money to live the life you want to. I think there's money on the publishing end. I, again, I don't think it's as much as people might think it is. I think sometimes when you hear all these expectations out of fans on Kickstarter or whatever else, they're like, oh, why aren't you doing this and this and this? You have to realize that every penny that they spend on a game, you know, times, you know, 2,000, 5,000 copies, you know, that that's money out of their pocket. That's That's money that they don't get. You know, the designers and the publishers don't get. So, yeah, I mean, we want to bling out stuff as much as possible and give people the best product possible. But, you know, there, there isn't much money as it is. And every time you add costs, you're really taking money out of your pocket, not just because of the cost of the item itself, but also the cost of shipping and all that stuff. So because it's such a physical product, there's a lot of costs associated with it. And people are like, oh, games are 50 bucks. There should be plenty of money in there. But by the time it really trickles down to the designer and the publisher, it, it's really not as much as you think. No, definitely not. All right, so my number uh, eight is a one that's pretty close to my heart. If I had like ordered my list, it probably would have been near the end. And again, this this is just speaking from my experience. Like, I don't want to say this is at all everyone's process. I don't even know if it's Peter's process, but I, I think it's good for any game you want to design that you have a hook. And you'll hear this a lot when people talk about pitching games to uh, publishers or even like marketing games for consumers. You need to have some kind of like hook, some really interesting theme, some like new mechanic or different type of mechanic people haven't seen before to get them interested. But that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is needing a hook for you, needing a hook to keep you interested in your own design and to lead you in your own design. So for me, sometimes it's a thematic hook. I've uh, designed games based on like movies that I love trying to capture kind of that feel, like not the actual IP, but just like the feel or the setting of that movie. I've designed games based on like video games that I love. I've come up with some mechanic that just seems like really neat to me and seems like it has a lot of play potential and kind of designed the whole game around that. So I think uh, you want to start off with a game that either thematically or mechanically or both is new and is exciting to you because that's going to give you the energy and the drive to kind of design the other things around it and hopefully bring the whole design together. You know, so uh, I, I want to do a bag builder, but a bag builder like no one else has ever done before because it's going to do blank. Yes, that's so exciting, you know, and, and it might not work out, but I think uh, starting with that hook for yourself is going to get your mental energy in the right place to hopefully stick it through and make something cool happen. 
Well, and it gives you a focus in a direction too, right? Like if you've got something you know that you're building this game around, it gives you something to build around. It gives you when you're having to make tough de- decisions, what's going to stay in, what's going to go out. It, it like points you in that direction, right? Oh, I want to build it for this. Well, you want to maximize that thing then. And so I think when you're at those crossroad moments, the hook itself kind of can guide you in a lot of these situations. Yeah, and I think the like opposite of that that I would say is maybe a pitfall to fall into with game design. Like, I personally would not go into designing a game just being like, well, I want to make Gloomhaven, but my Gloomhaven. You know, but you don't right. actually have anything that is like unique or interesting to you. Or, I mean, e- even worse, <laughs> I played a lot of dungeon crawls. I like dungeon crawls. I bet I can design a dungeon crawl. But like, that's the extent of your thought. I'm just going to make a dungeon crawl. I imagine that's where a lot of these like... <laughs> bog standard like nothing interesting or new about them dungeon crawlers come from nothing wrong with that they can still be fun but uh yeah i I wouldn't want to design something that's like totally kind of devoid of newness and freshness at least in my mind all right guys i'm realizing the bottom of this list is pretty negative at least from my perspective i promise you it gets better as we go to the top so hang in there this is this is not a negative uh session (laughs) but but my number eight is there's also not as much fame or recognition as you think in being a game designer. Well, especially, uh, I think, more so now, right? Well, you, you think about it. Like, I've been at conventions with John Gilmore, with Richard Launius, you know, all these people that you think of, Jeff Engelstein, and they're just walking around and people really aren't stopping them all the time. And this is a game convention, which is the place where all the gamers are. Like people don't know who they are. I mean, I guess it's because unlike an author, like our pictures aren't on the side of the boxes or whatever else. So, and maybe people know who they are and they're just too shy to come up or whatever. I've certainly seen designers get approached or whatever, but if you're in this for like fame, you think you're going to become famous. (laughs) Like you're not even going to become probably board game famous. And even if you are, I I don't know that that means that people are going to know who you are. I guess I'm trying to dig into motivations and like what people think is going to happen. And like, you look up to these people, right. And you're like, Oh my gosh, like, it'd be so cool to be like this person or whatever. But when you see them, I've played games with uh, Mike Fitzgerald at WBC World board gaming championship. Nobody knew who he was. I didn't know who he was when I was playing with him, but you know, he's one of the most famous card designers of all time. But like, I didn't even know who he was when I was playing with him. Now I got to know him and I got to know his games and things like that. And he's a very cool, very great guy. But if you're trying to do this because you think you're going to become famous or whatever else, or you're in it for recognition, like that's not the right motivation either. It's not money. It's not fame. So maybe we'll figure out by the end of this list what it is. But <laughs> well, and, 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 you know, I think that maybe uh, could be called a flaw in our industry that maybe designers don't get as much credit and recognition. Now, clearly some do. But, you know, people like know the name of the game and often they know the publisher and they're like, oh, I really like this publisher or that publisher. Maybe the designers aren't uh, given their proper due sometimes. I don't know, but I can see that being a possibility. Well, but even the most famous designers, let's say Martin Wallace. If Martin Wallace walked up to you, would you know it was him? Well, absolutely not. But <laughs> but like you said, it's because I've never seen his face. <laughs> right. And I mean, it was the same thing. I was at... Um... Stefan Feld, I think, was at the last Gen Con I was at. And I was sitting there talking to him. And again, I didn't even know it was him. Sure, you can look at his name badge and figure it out. And it's like, oh, cool. But yeah, that's the thing. I mean, this is not an industry, you know, where we're not movie actors or things like that, right? You're not, your picture's not on the stage. I think content creators are actually probably more famous than designers. Well, if only because their face is on their thing every day, you know, like you, you get to see them over and over again for sure. Yep. 
All right, so so my number, what are we on? Ten, nine, eight, seven. My number seven. Yeah, so this is uh, related to my number eight. I just said that you need a hook. You know, you want to have something new. You want to have something fresh. Uh, but this is a phrase that is very uh, popular in uh, writing circles. And that's uh, kill your darlings in kind of novel writing. It's the idea that like your favorite character or your favorite scene probably gets too self-indulgent. So you should consider like editing it heavily or cutting it entirely because it'll probably make the overall book better. And what I mean, though, here is this has happened to us so many times. We'll have a game that is based upon one really important theme and like the entire design has been that theme. And then suddenly the publisher wants us to switch the theme entirely, or we decide that the theme is problematic in some way and we need to switch it. Or, you know, you, you make a game and the entire game is real time. Like, you know, when you originally thought of it, we're going to make a real time uh, football game. It's going to be the best football game ever. And you make it and everything's working really well. And the only part people don't like is that it's real time. <laughs> Right. You know, so you'll have things that you thought were the entire heart of the game, but through design, you have to fill in all of these gaps. And sometimes the things you thought were just going to be like little bricks leading to that foundation of like the amazingness that was your core idea. Sometimes those bricks are the best part of a design. And that thing you thought was like the crowning achievement has to go by the wayside. But the uh, little caveat to that is before I let Peter go again, uh, keep all your old files Use, uh, you know, Google Docs ability to look back at previous drafts because sometimes you'll take feedback too much to heart and change things too quickly. And actually, you shouldn't have killed that one element. Actually, that mechanic was great. So be ready to change things when needed. Be ready to totally revise your game. Whoops, it's not co-op anymore. It's competitive. If it's for the best of the game and the best of the experience and your ability to sell that game, but keep your old stuff so you can revert if needed. Yeah, there's so many times we've just tried something to try it. And we might have gone in going, you know, this probably isn't going to work, but we should try it anyway, just to see how it feels. Because game design is a lot about feel, right? It's 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 an art. It's not a science. There's no like one plus one is two here. Like sometimes one plus one is three. Sometimes one plus one is zero. Yeah. Like it just gets <laughs> way worse. <laughs> just keep that in mind and don't be afraid to revert. And I guess something that goes along with this and it's not on my list, but it might be on yours is try not to change too much at a time Yeah. yeah. because then if it does go to zero, you have no idea why. Like you're like, and, and you may think, you know, and you change that thing, but it's still not back to where it was and you've lost the soul of the game. I mean, we've had plenty of games that were so fun early on and we've just done change and change and change. And at one point I go back and I go, didn't this game used to be fun? What happened? Right? <laughs> like, So I think that can happen too if you do too many changes, especially if you do them too many at once. Well, and add too many elements. I think a lot of it for us at least has been bogging designs down, you know, because this, this was not on my list, so we can call this my 11, but you play a game so much as a designer, you're playing your own game you know, through all the iterations, 200 times, 300 times, depending, I guess. Well, you should be at least. Well, right. Yeah, you should be. <laughs> and you, you play it so much that you will get bored with things that are not boring. You will seek, yes. you know, variety with things that are already varied from an objective standpoint. And you'll be like, oh, man, I better add this. Or or <laughs> like we did in a few of our early games, uh, you will be like, well, this is too easy. You'll make it really hard and not realize it's now impossible for the average player. And you've created like this devilish puzzle that no one can actually play through. So, you know, just just be careful about like adding things in. And uh, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm adding in too many tips, but keep playing your game with new people to get fresh eyes on it. You know, keep seeing what the first experience is like as you delve into the deeper experience. 
So you never forget like what needs to be exciting about it from game one, from learning the rule book. No, man, this is great. There's definitely not too many tips. And I'm not even saying this jokingly. You know, I joke about a lot of stuff. But seriously, that's why I wanted to do this episode. Like the more tips, the merrier, right? I mean, it's a top 10 list, but we are going to have a lot of overlap. I see it coming because you didn't order yours by at least the most important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've said some really important stuff that I'm going to have later on my list. And I'm sure vice versa is true as well. But yeah, no, I I mean, I wanted this to be something that designers can use and non-designers too, right? People thinking about getting into design. And again, don't let my first couple of points and even continuing into this one detract you from design. I just want you going in with eyes wide open and doing it for the right reasons. And so that's why, you know, I have some of these even cautions in here. Uh, But my number seven is, you've already talked about this. The beginning is super fun. And then the hard work comes in. Yes. And then... (laughs) And and not only the hard work, I'll say the most important work of the game comes in at the end. It is super easy to come up with ideas and even mechanisms. Like it's super easy to make those ideas and mechanisms work and flow together and be fun. And that's the hard part, right? Is the fun part. Like you have to find the fun in that design. That's the hard part. And sometimes you even have the fun early And then the drudgery comes in, right? And if you don't pay attention to those little steps at the end, things are going to get missed though, right? You're going to have things that aren't fully developed. You're going to have things that break the moment people play with them. You're going to have things that aren't as fun as they should be because you're like, you know what? You're just throwing stuff together. And if you don't play test that properly, if you don't do all that little grunt work at the end, then the product, the end product, the end game really suffers for it. So while the beginning's the fun part and you're going to want to jump to the next design and des- next design, we have like a folder of probably 100 designs and 100 ideas, right? That's why I say ideas are easy. But it's forcing yourself to go back to that design you've been working on and get through the hard part because it's not going to become easier. It's not like if you put the game down for three months and come back to it, that hard part's still going to be the same hard stuff. It's like I tell my kids with their homework. Like if you have an hour of homework now or an hour of homework tomorrow, it's still an hour of homework, right? So if you complain for 30 minutes now, <laughs> all you're doing is making that hour of homework take an hour and a half because you're, you have to factor in the complain time now. So just get it done. So I, I would say, I mean, I guess that's the tip part of it is even when you get to that part that's not as fun, just grind through it and get it done. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes you do need to step away from your design and you need to work on a different one. But don't think it's going to get easier when you come back You know, three months down the road. Well, you know, I'll just add something to that because yes, in some ways, the most fun part is at the beginning and the hard part is like the drudgery of like balancing and iterating and that kind of stuff near the end. But I think the truly hardest part, and this goes with your advice though, is the very, very, very beginning. Because like you said, ideas are so easy, but at least for me, and, and we designed so many games, if we count the ones that haven't been published with the ones that have been published or are going to be published, like we've designed to a major playable way, a ton of games. But every time, still for me at least, it is such a... (laughs) I have to just push this boulder to get some cards made and like have something I can sit down and actually try out. Because concepting is easy, but like to actually put something on paper is tough. And again, this is a lot like novel writing and other things. Like lots of people to sit around, I think. I know I do this. And just think about, oh man, I could write a great novel. I could write a great novel about this. I have a fun story. But then to like actually sit down and force yourself to write a page of dialogue, it's a very kind of confrontationally challenging and, and stressful thing. So like Peter said, uh, 
one of the toughest parts is right at the start and just force yourself to do something, write some cards by hand and just like the bare minimum, you know, like don't, don't try to create a hundred cards for your game, write like the three cards you need to play one turn of the game and see if there's anything there. And if there's not, you don't have to give up right away. Just change something else, make three new cards, try it out and see if there's anything there. <laughs> nice. No, that's a really good point. All right. So what's your number six, Mike? So my number six, uh, this is a kind of like a thing that I didn't know about designing, but it also kind of comes into a tip. So the thing I didn't know is people think that they should tell you how to design your game and tell you how to completely change it and tell you how to fix it. And they have no problem telling you that stuff. It's <laughs> it's a similar realization <laughs> yes. about humanity and like people as when uh, my wife was pregnant and I don't know if people have experience of this, but it's something that my wife and I talk about a lot. Like just the horrible kind of uh, cruelty and insensitivity of people who think that because a woman is pregnant, suddenly her body is some communal object. You know, did you ever have this, Peter, where like random people would like tell your wife what to do or what not to do, or they're a terrible mother for this, or they're a good mother for that? Like suddenly like they are allowed to have some stake in like your body and your stuff. Like, did that ever happen with you? I, I don't think I was in the conversations where they said you're a terrible or a good mother. I know my wife's sister has certainly given her parenting advice, having no children of her own. Th- those are always the best. People that don't have kids that tell you exactly how you should be raising your kids and how bad your kids are acting. Th- that's always fun. Well, and, and the thing is, I'm not even talking about family members. I'm talking about like random old lady walking by chastising my wife for breastfeeding like in public with a cover like over the baby you know like that kind of a thing it's like what makes you think you have any place talking about any of this this is getting beside the point but it's the same like kind of frustration people will play your game that you've worked so hard on like let's say that it's a deck builder okay a card based deck builder they'll be like oh you know that was pretty cool you know it'd be great if you added a board and miniatures and dice and didn't have so many cards like, yes. <laughs> we've had people say that kind of stuff to our face, like, after a 10-minute, like, demo of the game. And it's just very frustrating. Well, the best part is when they don't even, like like you said, like, they're 10 minutes in, they don't even get to the good part yet. And they're like, yeah, this is what would make this game a lot better. Or you're just explaining the rules. And they're like, have you thought about this? I'm like, you haven't even played yet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah. I really hate that. That happens a lot. <laughs> Like, like with my solo variants, I'll be like, hey, y'all, I'm working on the solo variant. And they'd be like, well, your variant is wrong because of this. I'm like, you haven't even read the rules or played it. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So th- the advice out of this, feedback is super valuable. And man, it is so beautiful that people will take the time to tell you what they thought of your game, having played it or just having heard the concept and give you their honest opinion. Like that can really help you to see what's going to make your game better, what might be pitfalls for your game, what kind of people might not enjoy your game. But for any feedback, this could be from someone you just told the game to, this could be from somebody who just played it, this could be from your top play tester. The big thing, this kind of almost goes into a second point, you want to listen You want to take notes, but you don't want to jump on their idea. You want to, as the designer, the person who knows the game best, try to get to the core of the experience that made them give you that note. So they might say, I hate these type of cards, or I hate the dice doing this. But don't immediately change the dice. Don't be too quick to change something. Try to get to the heart of like, oh, is it making the game feel too random? oh, is it too unbalanced in one player's favor? 
And then maybe you might need to fix something entirely separate because you know your game better than they do. So listen to feedback, but be ready to totally ignore it. Be ready to smile and nod your head and say, oh, really cool, uh, which I've done a billion times. Or be ready to like dig deeper and try to find out what the true problem is and work on that. Yeah. Uh, Playtesters often have the right feelings, but they don't always have the right solutions and often don't have the right solutions because they haven't been working with the game. And look, as a designer, here's the other thing you have to realize. It's coming from a good place. You can't take it the wrong way. Like it is coming from a good place. It's coming from a place of love. So be kind to your playtesters because certainly playtesting is a valuable resource and it's something you don't want to use up or waste by being mean to them. And then they never want to play any of your games again. Yeah. The, the, the worst feedback you can get after a playtest is not, I didn't like your game and here's why, or here's the parts I didn't enjoy. The worst feedback you can get is, oh, I mean, it was all right. Yeah, I really know. And I'll be honest, I, I, I've given that feedback before, but it's usually for a game I really don't like. <laughs> like oh, yeah, that, yeah, well, that's yes. usually what that means for me. It's like, I don't even care enough about your game and not in a mean way, but like, I can't even muster enough of an idea like of how to fix this because it's so far away from anything that I would ever want to play again that uh, I'm not even going to give you feedback. I find a meanest when I love the game the most. And I think that's as a designer, we take some of those things to heart. But you have to realize it's because probably because the person really likes what you're doing and likes most of the game. And they just wish this part was different. Yes. All right. How about you, Peter? What's your number six? Gosh, I feel like I'm talking so long. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No worries, man. Again, this is meant to be a design discussion. And uh, so I, I think this is good. I mean, these are important points here. All right. So one last thing that's negative before I start getting into the good stuff. Yay. You will get some games back. I, I remember as a designer, the most excited I ever was is when our first game got signed and we got that game back. In fact, we've gotten that game back three times from three different publishers uh, that game. Like, <laughs> who, who, who have signed the game and keep giving it back to us. There's a spark there. There's clearly something people see in the game, but it's, it's clearly not good enough to make it to publication. And so I I think a lot of times people get so excited and you should, and you should be happy about this. And it's such an exhilarating moment when your game first gets signed. But I think there's also some degree of like, all right, I'm done now. And you're not right. (laughs) Like you may have more development to do depending on the publisher themselves. You may have more work to do. They may want you to totally revamp something. You may still have a lot of work to do, or you may have none left to do. Yeah, just don't get bummed out because you will get at least one design back from a publisher at some point in your career. I think even the most famous of designers, the ones that have designed, you know, hundreds of games at this point have probably gotten, you know, in the 20s to 30s of games back. So is it just something that happens in the industry? So because of that, actually, I let, let's turn it into a, a lesson here is try to get an advance. Try to get some money up front. Because if and when you do get that game back, you don't want it to have just sat on the shelf for three years, all your hard, you might've done three years of work on the game. And then it sat on the shelf for three years. And now they're like, nah, we're not really going to do this game. It's the market has changed so much. Well, yeah, it's changed because you've sat on it for three years. And now you've got a game that's basically worthless because nobody else is going to want it either if the market's changed that much. And so you'll have to go back and rework it and do stuff again. And you've got nothing out of that. So I would say try to get an advance. And now it's usually an advance against the money you will make later. But if they don't ever make the game, that's money that you get to keep. And so I would say definitely push for some kind of an advance unless you are 100% sure. And trust me, there are 
publishers is that we thought we were 100% sure that we're going to do it and they never did. So I would definitely say try to get some money up front because you deserve money for the work you've put into that game. Absolutely. Yeah, this has happened to us many times, <laughs> both on the positive yep. and the negative end. Uh, yeah, so my number five will be very fast because it's almost the exact same thing or very related. And that is just to be aware that uh, probably your first design won't get published. Probably your second design won't get published. Maybe your third, maybe your fourth. Maybe it's like your seventh design that finally gets some interest. And that's okay. Often it's because you're getting better at the actual skills of designing. And that seventh game is way better than the six before it. But also, I mean, you've seen this so many times from designers where they had one game that did pretty well, and suddenly they can sell their third design, or suddenly they can sell their original first design. So yeah, don't don't be afraid if a game is languishing to move on to something else. You don't have to be that one, you don't have to have that one grail game that is the entire reason you're designing be the entirety of your design world. Make a few other things, find one that finally clicks with somebody, and then come back to old ones if you need to. Yeah, and this isn't one of my points, but I think this does go to the motivation. I said, don't do it for the money. Don't do it because you think you're going to get fame or recognized. You have to do it for yourself. You have to have that love there. You have to want to do it as an art, as you've described before, as a writer, as a filmmaker, as an actor. It it really does. Game design, like everything else, you have to have a passion for it, and you have to want to create something that brings other people joy. I think that is really where the motivation should come from. And when you do that, you're not going to mind that you have five bad designs before you get to that sixth one. It'll push you through some of those hard and boring times. And I'll say, we've seen designers, and you've seen it too, that have a great game, and then you hear nothing from them again because they've tried to make 10 other games and they were horrible. And maybe it's that first game that's your best idea. Maybe for whatever reason, I mean, inspiration and genius moments hit us all, but it, you know, it's going to be different points. So, you know, just like you don't judge your kids as they grow up and compare them to other kids and like, oh, my kid was reading when he was four. Well, my kid didn't read till he was seven. Well, you know what? That seven-year-old's still reading when they're an adult, right? So you don't have to judge your, you know, your babies, your games, your designs. You don't have to think of yourself as a failure because your first six designs never went anywhere. So bottom line is do it because you love it. And eventually that creativity will strike you too, and you'll have a great game. All right, Peter, how about your, what are we on? Four? Number five. 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 All right. So mine has to do something with what you said before. And this one has to do all about you, Mike. It's work with a partner that compliments you. And you you said work with a partner and, and have somebody there. And I agree. And we've covered a lot of this. But I think the part we didn't cover is the compliments you part. Hey, Peter. And so, yes. You got really pretty eyes. Uh, thank you for the compliment. There you go. <laughs> so the more he compliments me, the more I want to work with him. See? See how that works? See how great that is? But what I mean by that, obviously, is you have skill sets that work together. If you're both really good, and you could be, right? You could be both really good at the same stuff, but then there's going to be weaknesses and holes and gaps and things you're going to miss. You know, a game we're working on right now, he's really into the theme. He's really all on board with it. And and sometimes I think you lose some of the individual trees there because you're just so happy with the forest. And what I think I do well is sometimes I could pick out those individual trees and go, but wouldn't it be better if this tree was like this instead of like this? Then that forest is even more beautiful, right? So I think... 
you know, Mike's really good at having a vision and really good at working toward that vision. And he's got lots of great ideas. He's come, he comes up with really, really great ideas. And I think I'm sometimes better at picking out flaws, really being the, the naysayer and the negative person. And like, no, I don't think that's going to work, even though we'll, we'll try it still. But, you know, <laughs> I, I think we have complementary skill sets in that way. And so I think it helps to have somebody that doesn't have the exact same skills as you. Like if you're both really good at seeing the forest, well, there's going to be a lot of bad trees. Yeah, I totally agree. So my number four is a very basic one, but uh, you should play a lot of games and you should play a lot of different types of games and even force yourself to play games that usually aren't in your wheelhouse. And lots of reasons for this. You'll have inspiration strike. You'll see mechanics that you might be able to tie into one of your designs in some way. Sometimes you're even going to steal a mechanic. I mean, steal is not the right word, but you know what I mean? Like borrow or be inspired by like, oh man, that's a great way of doing deck building. I want to uh, work that into my game that has other things that are different. But the more you play, the more you know. Uh, It's again, very much like uh, writing, which I do a little bit of, my wife does a lot of. Uh, Like you got to read authors to appreciate the cool things they're doing and both be inspired and uh, kind of elevate your own idea of what is possible in the medium, what is possible in game design. Yeah, no, I totally agree. We've taken inspiration from games we don't even like, but it's like, oh, that one part was so cool. Like, how do we do that? Oh, yeah. I mean, still like uh, we we have to design at some point a game with a similar level up system to Planet Apocalypse because that is genius. (laughs) Yes. No, absolutely. Uh, you, you mean Dice Throne Adventures? No, Planet Apocalypse. Remember how like your characters have unique spaces on the board, but then you uh, you take the level up cards from the middle. So you get both a unique effect and a like kind of market effect and you combine them. You don't remember that? Oh, no, I don't. But I'll have to play that one again. It's sitting on my shelf staring at me. Yeah, I haven't even got it in my house. Go listen to our podcast on it because you were like, this is like the best level up system I've ever seen. Just like I was. <laughs> Well, and I was thinking Adventure Tactics, and I even diced it on Adventures, man. <laughs> There's so many adventure-named games. Uh, adventure Tactics is a great level. Well, adventure system. Tactics is a great living system. I think uh, Planet Apocalypse is even cleaner and smoother, and it's a, such a awesome design. All right. So my number four is go to conventions. This is so important. You know, it's so funny because you're like, well, why do I need to go to conventions as a designer? Well, that's where you're going to pitch. That's where you're going to meet publishers. That's where you're going to meet other designers. My top one would be Unpub. I've heard Metatopia is amazing. That's another, you know, designer focused convention. Uh, Origins, I found to be the best outside of Unpub, the best convention to pitch games at. PAX Unplugged, really it's the same thing. There's so many vendors there, so many publishers there, and it's not really a buying convention. So I think, you know, from what I've seen, I remember we were developing a game with a publisher last year and they had time to meet with us pretty much every day and work on the game at that convention. And the final one would be Gen Con. Now, Gen Con's tough. Gen Con's really tough because they are, that is what I like to call a selling convention. They are there to sell games. Publishers are there selling, selling, selling. There are unpub events and things like that, both at PAX Origins and I think, well, no, I don't think Origins does, but I, I know Gen Con has to have some kind of a game design event as well. So it's great for that kind of stuff. But meetings with publishers are a little bit harder at Gen Con, but it's still a good place to go because you're going to meet so many people and you're going to meet a friend and they're going to introduce you to another friend. And that's how you really network within this design community. You are much likelier to sign a game with somebody you know than trying to sign a game with somebody you have no connect previous connection to. Or if you both have friends that are the same. 
publishers want to work with designers that they feel comfortable with. And so getting to know them in the social settings, even if you don't have a game to pitch them, right, is super important. Yeah, my, my next one, I actually changed the order just to match up with you, Peter. Mine is right in there. And that's just that you want to, in whatever way you need to practice, if this is not your normal personality, but you want to get comfortable starting conversations that might be a little awkward with people. Uh, that's both sending emails to people and in person. Like, I, gosh, I remember the first time that I walked up to a publisher and I knew they were a publisher because I had asked some people or Peter knew that they were a publisher. And I was like, hi, we have a game to show you if you would like to see it sometime today or tomorrow. You know, and just like... <laughs> that was at one of the early unpubs. That was like three or four or something oh back God. in Delaware yeah, in the, man. Like in the was, cafeteria. <laughs> yeah, I was so nervous. And, you know, luckily they were nice and I, I was nice to them. <laughs> Work on your social awkwardness. If you've been told by people before that you are unintentionally rude or stuff, you might want to find ways to get past that. But yeah, just be ready to like put yourself out there. I mean, even as a content creator, I have to do this all the time. I'm like just emailing random companies being like, hey, I'd love to cover your game. Uh, can I do that? <laughs> you know, and so many times uh, you, got, you got at the same time, a, kind of a, a part two of this uh, tip, get used to rejection. Publishers will never write you back. They'll say they're not interested. They will say, no, I don't have time for you right now. First of all, be ready for rejection. But second of all, immediately follow up with that second opportunity. So if you're like, hey, can I show you my game? Oh, they don't have time right now. Oh, that's awesome. I'll be here tomorrow too. When can we maybe do it tomorrow? You know, and Peter, Peter knows more about this than I do. He's really helped me get better with this because he's, he's a salesman. So he knows about that from his professional career. But like every time you get a no, open it up. Or, you know, if you're sending an email and they're like, oh, we're not interested in that kind of game. It's like, oh, that's awesome. Well, do you mind if I email you when I have my next design ready to show off? And just like immediately leave that door open, refer back to the previous attempt. That kind of forms a previous connection. So yeah, just building on what you already said, Peter, your advice was better than mine. <laughs> no, no, I think that's good. And um, I mean, we're getting into duplicate territory here because my number three is listen to your playtesters, but the final decision is yours yes. and follow your vision. Playtesters, the more feedback they give you, that means they liked your game. Or really hated it, I guess. I mean, I've never had a playtester like totally hate, like usually people totally hate your game. You can tell because they can't get away from the table fast enough because it's an awkward conversation to have. Usually if people are giving you a lot of detailed feedback, for me, that means they really liked what they did. They just want to make it better. And so Mike is absolutely right on this though. You have to figure out what they're really trying to tell you. Definitely, I, I mean, Mike's taught me this one write down notes on everything they said because you will never remember it, especially if you're doing an event like Unpub and you do like 10 playtests a day, there is zero chance you are going to remember playtest one without some of those notes. You'll remember some of the feedback, but you won't remember all of it and you might forget the most important things. Now, listen to what they're trying to tell you, but don't always implement everything they do. Sometimes they have great ideas, but a lot of times they have the right intention but the idea isn't exactly right for your game. And so don't follow every wind. And that's the other thing. Know where your game is in the design process here. And like, if you're close to a finished game and they're suggesting major sweeping changes, if they're the only ones doing that, I mean, you really have to think twice before you consider something like that. I mean, I know we've been there like, 
oh, this game's been great. It's been great. People have been loving it. Oh, but maybe this would make it better. No, stop yourself. Like stop. As designers, we always want to over-design things. Don't do that. Like if you're at the end of your game and everybody's been loving it, but somebody gave you an idea that might be awesome, that's great. Write it down, file away for later. Maybe that'll be a great expansion for your game, but you can't keep designing your game. There's got to be a time where you stop designing and now you're looking for tweaking feedback and things like that. And unless it's a real problem, don't make wholesale changes that late. Good addition. My number two, but again, not at all in order, is uh, technology is your friend in so many ways. <laughs> and I think COVID has even made me appreciate this more. We now are now doing all of our designing and our like prototyping, if you want to call it that, through Tabletop Simulator. And we can not only play uh, from our different houses, our game, whenever we want to, we can uh, make changes in a second without any cost of ink, without any cost of paper, with the tireless hours of cutting things out. Uh, we can send it to people on our Discord and they can play it at a moment's notice and just jump right in. Uh, we can send it to publishers. We've sold games through TTS in this period. Like, that's awesome. <laughs> yep. But uh, even beyond that, like, I've just uh, started experimenting with a card creation program so I can do all these cards for our games on an Excel sheet and just import it into the spreadsheet creator, and boom, I have cards. And then if I need to rebalance stuff, it takes like 10 seconds instead of like going back through every single card one by one. Discord and Facebook, these are like social networking things, but amazing place to find design groups, to find playtesters, to find people just to like chat with about design or just kind of like chat about your favorite things about games. So uh, yeah, as someone who was very uh, used to kind of the way we were designing, like Peter just staying up for 18 hours, uh, making physical prototypes. Oh uh, my it, gosh. <laughs> it is very cool. It's so awful. I mean, I, I never want to do that again, except for if we're going to a convention to sell it and I literally need a physical prototype. I never want to do that for one of our games ever again. I agree. So somebody has paid us money <laughs> and we just need to check that it works in a physical format. I never want to do that again. <laughs> And so many people are so negative on Tabletop Simulator. I hear a lot of this from the design community and from, I, I, well, I shouldn't say so many. I, I think people are divided out there. And I'll tell you, the, the people that are divided are people who haven't really gone all in on it. You see people like, oh, I tried it once or twice. Tabletop Simulator is so hard. It takes so long. Let me tell you, like once you get used to it, there are things that are way faster and way easier on Tabletop Simulator. I do think at some point you want to physically play test your game because I do think there are, you know, just subtle differences. When I play games on TTS, I, I don't get the same feeling as when I play it live and in person and touching the cards and things like that. Dice Throne Adventure taught me that, right? Like I had so much more fun playing the physical version of that. And you want to make sure your game has that physical tactileness to it, that it is enjoyable and it's not fiddly, but don't shun the technology either. Tabletop Simulator is really easy once you get used to it, and it's just learning the language. It's like anything else. And once you've learned it, your design and iteration process will become so much better. You can play test with people all across the country. You could pitch people all across the country. And like Mike and I, we live close to each other, but obviously we haven't been able to see each other. We're still an hour away. I don't want to drive an hour just to play test with Mike. Like we've done that many times in the past. I'm not worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Remember what we said about complimenting your partners? I'm doing the opposite of that right now. (laughs) But yeah, no, that technology is so important. Don't shun it and don't say, well, you're losing something because you're not. You're losing something by not doing it. The playtime and iteration is just so much faster, so much easier, and you can work with people all over the place. I, I don't see a reason to go back. Not for us, at least anyway. 
Peter, you're number two, and this is actually your second biggest one. It is. And you said this would be way higher on your list, and it's way higher on my list, and that's your game needs a hook. It needs something. Now, Mike did it from his perspective. I'm going to do it from pitching to a publisher and pitching it to the public perspective. There's got to be something about your game that makes people want to play it. There's got to be that unique thing, like Mike said, where it's that unique thing that drives him to keep coming back and and work on it. If you have that, your players should have that too, right? Like if there is that hook about the game, then, you know, the, the whole point of it is it's like to hook people in, but it shouldn't just be a gimmick, right? It should actually be a hook. It should be what the game is all about. It should be what excites people. When they tell their friends about it, they should be telling them about this one thing about the game that makes it better than all the other games. Why should I play this next dungeon crawl? Well, this one does this. For Gloomhaven, it's the cards, right? It's the top of the one, the bottom of the other. It's your initiative. It's everything. It's such great hand management. That's what makes that game good. Your game needs something like that that's going to be able to point out. They're going to be able to talk about it quickly within 30 seconds. People should know what your game's about based on that hook. And let me tell you, we've had really good games, really well-designed games that haven't gone anywhere because we haven't figured out the hook. Even though the gameplay is good, you might have a hook in there. We just had to figure out that hook for ourselves and it might not be what you originally think. So that's a reason to practice pitching, pitch to your friends, see what they think, the ones that have played it and the ones that haven't. Like, would you be interested in something like this? Because you need to figure out the way to talk about your game as well. So the hook's gotta be there. There's gotta be something unique and unique about your game that will draw people in, but you also have to be able to articulate that hook as well. All right, and my number one, which is not at all my number one, (laughs) but it's still, I think, uh, (laughs) valuable. So this is not what Peter and I did, but I wish we had. Get your feet wet designing something simple. Just to have something be finished to completion and know that you are capable of doing it. And I don't even mean a new game. Like, get your feet wet to doing a solo variant for something. Get your feet wet doing a retheme of something with, like, different art and a few different mechanics. Just, like, play around with stuff. And then when you're ready to do a game, do, like, a little card game. You know, do, do, uh, do like, one of, like, the button-shy style, like, 18-card things or whatever. Like, do one of those little challenges. (laughs) It was not our first game, but Dark Dealings, it eventually got published. We, like, cranked out the core design of that in, like, two weeks, <laughs> you know, compared to most of our games that are taking us, like, two years or three years of work. So I think it can be really valuable. Like, again, this is how I wish we had gone. Just to design something that is pretty straightforward and simple and small, maybe all cards, because that'll make it easier to prototype and try out. And if you, first of all, you'll see if you like it. Like, you'll find out if, like, maybe this is worth your time and effort, if this is something you can actually have some passion for. But again, just like the pride of knowing I wanted to make something and I made it and it is pretty good is going to, I think, help you through those tough days and nights when you're working on that bigger project and it's not going that great at first. You know, you've already done it before. You know, again, like to have a writing analogy, like write that short story and get a really good short story before you maybe make that 500 page novel, (laughs) you know. But keep that dream project there, right? I mean, I don't regret at all that we worked on this one game so much because we learned so much from that design. And you're right. I I wish I had done or we had done smaller stuff first. But I would still say at the end of the day, you have to have a passion and a reason for doing it. If you're not excited about doing an 18 card game, you're not going to do your best work. So I would say with caveat, yes, I agree with you. You want to work on something smaller first but only if you can build up enough passion to get yourself to the finish line on it. All right, so Peter, finish it up big, buddy. 
All right. So my number one is first impressions are so important. And I mean, uh, Gloomhaven, I think, is the perfect example of this. We actually got frustrated with base Gloomhaven when we first played it. Now, we got past it because the mechanisms were so good. But that first room, like we died three times right away. And I mean, after spending an hour setting it up, it was frustrating. Like we didn't even make it out of that first room the first time we played it. You play Jaws of the Lion. It's such a cleaner experience. It's so easy to get into. It eases you into the game. It makes you feel good about doing something good. That first experience that people have with your game is so important. People don't play games 50, 60 times. Like they're just not. Certainly not if the first impression is not good. That first impression is everything. You want to focus. If you've got more energy to spend, you want to spend it on that first experience people have with your game. You want to make sure that that is a great experience. And then you want them to want more afterward. With campaign systems, stuff like that, you're adding a little bit more each time. You're giving them a hook to come back for that next session, right? You're giving them a little something that they're going to get better. Oh, I want to try this out next time we play, right? They get excited about coming back to the game, but they only get excited if that first experience is good. You can't expect people to fumble through your first game to try to get to the point where they're experts at it and want to come back. There are certainly exceptions to the rule, of course. Yes, maybe your game can get past that. Maybe you got these really heavy games that take 10 plays to learn, but there still has to be something fun in that first game. Or just everybody's talking about it so much, you you have to come back because you keep hearing about it. But there's got to be something in that first game to hook those people in. All right. Well, that was <laughs> a lot of uh, tips and thoughts, and hopefully some of it was helpful, or at least interesting, even if you don't ever intend to design a game. Uh, it's certainly been a journey with uh, you and me, Peter. How, how many years now we've been designing? It feels like 10, but I, I've said 10 for the last like four years. So I don't know that that's true at all. I, I keep saying 10 and at one point it will actually be 10 years, but I, I don't know. Well, I mean, it, it must be, it's more than 10 years because it was certainly way before like my kids were born, for example. Yeah, no, it was before Nick was born. That's what got me into it. So Nick is 13 now. So yeah, it's 14 years that we've been working on this. And we have two published games, by the way. You know, we talk about it and we think about it all the time. Certainly, we're not at the pace of a lot of people, right? Yeah. You know, we we take our time. We're doing this as more of a hobby than, you know, as something we're doing full time. So if we don't want to do it, we've certainly taken six months off, nine months off in the past where we haven't really made any significant progress on any of our projects. But yeah, no, we've been doing this for a long time now. And hopefully we'll continue doing it more. And hopefully you'll, uh, you know, knock on wood, you should be seeing some design stuff from us soon, maybe. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, no, we've definitely got some things that'll come out. I mean, we've said this so many times in the past and like, <laughs> shot ourselves in the foot because we were like, oh, yeah, this game's definitely coming out this year. Yeah, no, it never has, obviously. But like this game's last... definitely coming out this year. I said it. <laughs> we got two that are definitely coming out. Mark it on your calendar. This year's our year. So that's our that's our 2021 uh, prediction show right there. Uh, I predict we will have two games at least kickstarted by the end of the year, if not already fully out. All right. So looking forward to that. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Have a good week ahead of you. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop or leave us a review on iTunes. 
Thanks again, and we'll see you next week for another Top 5 list. Hey, Mike. Yeah, yeah. You are one of the nicest people I know. Aww. You're good enough. You're <laughs> smart enough. Doggone like it. You. People like me. <laughs> they really do. Sometimes, sometimes.